Okay, so tonight we're going to continue looking at John Calvin. I'm going to go back and um, just, I've got some slides that I didn't use last week. Go back and pick up some of those. Uh, but mostly tonight I want to think about his theology and uh, uh, the book that's known as the Institutes of the Christian Religion. And at the end of our time, we're going to look at Calvin's impact on uh, France. Uh, we could look at any number of countries in Europe, uh, Holland, uh, Scotland, Hungary, uh, Lithuania, believe it or not. Uh, but I'm going to focus on France, which was his big concern uh, through his lifetime. And the development of a group of people, I'm sure you've heard the name, the Huguenots, and uh, something of their early story. Well, let's, uh, let's pray together. Our God, we bless you for the gift of this night and for the privilege of gathering like this. We praise you that we can gather in freedom. We pray for those who cannot do this around the world, who love you and are seeking to serve you. Um, remember them. And us, as we think about uh, events many years ago, but still have bearing upon our lives, Pray your blessing upon our reflections, our thoughts, our words. May they be good for us and glorifying to you. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. So, um, this is an early picture. It's a 17th century, 16th century rather, picture of Geneva. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about John Calvin as a theologian of the Holy Spirit. And this is a depiction of the Spirit coming down at Pentecost, which is actually this this uh, artwork is in uh, the church that Calvin uh, was pastor of in Geneva. So this is what I, we did. We did look at a picture like this uh, last week. This is the uh, Cathedral Saint Pierre or the Cathedral of Saint Peter. Uh, the if Calvin were to come back, the only thing that would be different to him is this facade here, which is 19th century. The rest of it is uh, medieval. And in fact, when you come inside the church, this is a, an early picture of Calvin. Uh, when you come inside the church, it's very intriguing that this is the pulpit that Calvin preached from. Here's the table. And normally when uh, Reformed and Evangelicals and Protestants had the opportunity to build their own churches, they shifted the pulpit to the center. And it's, this is a wooden pulpit. It's affixed to a, pole, uh, a pillar here. Um, it, when I was there, it didn't look like it couldn't have been taken down and placed here. Um, so it's intriguing that Calvin would preach from this uh, because there is a, there is a, a the, the church is built like most uh, cathedrals in uh, Europe. It's built in the shape of a cross. And so there is a, a, a chapel over here which would that he would be able to face that directly. Here he's going to he's going to have to turn to face the congregation. Here, um, congregation could see two or three thousand or so uh, during Calvin's day. Um, as I said last week, if you came and listened to Calvin uh, in his preaching, uh, he would preach normally Sunday morning, uh, depending on the time of the year, either eight or nine o'clock in the morning and then 3 o'clock in the afternoon. There were two morning services. He normally didn't do both. And then there was, uh, eventually there was uh, a service every second day during the week, and eventually a service every day during the week. And it was really a small preaching service. There'd be prayers, uh, they would sing a psalm, and then Calvin would speak for maybe 15 or 20 minutes. So the main preaching was on the Sunday. Uh, if you came and listen to Calvin, you would receive a theological education that few had received in Europe. You have to go all the way back to the days of Augustine in the 400s. Um, but not everybody listened. And so we have in the minute books of the elders, we have accounts of people being brought in to talk to the elders. And um, some of them were clearly fussing about, and they weren't listening to the preaching. Uh, others were... Um, warned to stop mumbling. <laughs> and you, you, you don't know what, like, what, okay, what, what, what on earth is this? And a number of years ago, a scholar whose expertise is this period, Robert Kingdom, uh, did an investigation of it. And it, would turn, it turns out that these are people 
who uh, they've, they never got used to the fact that uh, what they've now got is a reformed worship service. They were still thinking of the old days when that, that pulpit would have been there, but there would have been a screen here, which would hide the altar. The altar, uh, the, the table would have been pushed right against that wall, which is the east wall facing Jerusalem. The priest would have been behind that altar. There might not have been as many pews. In fact, there might not have been any pews at all. And um, uh, on the previous evening, the Saturday evening, the members of the congregation in the medieval period would have gone to confession, confessed certain sins. They would be given penance. And so, you know, let's say you came and said, well, you know, I, I, I lied to my, my spouse this week. Well, you know, 30 Hail Marys. And you would say your penance on Sunday morning at the worship service. So now you can see where the mumbling's coming. So you'd have all these people in here uh, who are waiting to, to hear that little bell tinkle, which at that point they're told basically, stop whatever you're doing. You're, the bread and the wine are about to be transubstantiated into the very body and blood of Christ. And you'll be coming up to receive the bread, the host. And so you'd have people in here saying their prayers. And what it would appear is that these people, um, you know, say it would be like a Madame Lafage was brought again and warned to stop mumbling. And uh, she was probably trying to re remember, okay, so when, the, when I, had, I went to confession and the priest, I, I had this sin, the priest gave me 40 Hail Marys. So she's saying them while Calvin's preaching. And you realize that not everybody was able to, to welcome or even to get into the swing of things. And um, in fact, in the first, we go, we'll look at this a little very briefly. In the first uh, uh, 14 years of Calvin's ministry, when he comes back from Strasbourg, there is significant opposition in the city to his preaching which we'll look at. Um, so these are, this is kind of a, an outline. He first comes to Geneva in 1536. He's there for three years, and then he gets expelled. Uh, these are the years in which Farel, if you remember, we looked at this last week, Farel had brought about a significant change in the city, preaching the gospel. They had kicked the Roman Catholic leader out, who was a man named Jacopo Sadletto, uh, Italian, and in some ways, the men who embraced uh, the Reformation embraced the Reformation not because it was the Reformation, but because it was Swiss and French, and they could boot the Italians out. And after three years of listening to Calvin, they thought, this is not what we wanted, and they kicked Calvin out. And Calvin goes to Strasbourg. We looked at this, and he's in Strasbourg for three years. Strasbourg uh, was an independent city-state. It's now part of France, but it's in that part of the uh, uh, region of France, Alsace-Lorraine, that went back and forth between Germany and France. Um, there were significant numbers of German speakers. The worship service, as we'll see uh, in a second, was in German in the main cathedral in Strasbourg, and Calvin would have a small chapel where he could conduct a, a service in French. And in fact, let me come back to this kind of timeline and show you. So this is, this is the picture I took when I was in uh, Strasbourg a few years ago. Uh, L'Église de Bouclier, uh, uh, the Church of the Armor, or the Armor Church. Um, it's an interesting name. And this is the church. Um, it's still functioning. I don't know if it's evangelical, but it's still functioning. And uh, this is where Calvin was set up by the reformers in Strasbourg. And he was there for three years. This is where he ends up getting married. Uh, there's his wife, Edilette. Um, they had no children. Um, uh, she had two children by a previous marriage. She's got a, looks like a French name, but she's almost definitely uh, uh, Dutch in her background. But would have been Francophone. She might have spoke Latin, uh, which is the lingua franca of a lot of these people. Um, this is a letter that Calvin wrote to Guillaume Farel, his close friend, when she died in 1549. This little line here um, 
is so remarkable, not so much because of its depth of feeling, but because of how different it would have been for much of Europe all through the Middle Ages. Truly mine is no common grief. I've been bereaved of the best friend of my life, of one who, if it had been so ordained, would willingly have shared not only my poverty, but also my death. During her life, she was the faithful helper. And that, that's kind of a, a, an echo of Genesis 2, of my ministry. And we don't know anything really much about her uh, beyond the letters that Calvin said. That, that, the, the sentiments he shares here are impossible to think of any churchman in the medieval period saying, because they're all celibate. They're all single. And one of the great rediscoveries of the Reformation is the goodness of marriage. And that marriage is the state in which most Christians live out their lives. And marriage is a school of sanctification. And you can think about that for a while. And it is. And uh, uh, Calvin and uh, Didelet were married for eight years. Uh, she does have at least two pregnancies, a stillborn child, and then one who lives a few days. There might have been three. Um, but if we go back here, uh, in 1541, Calvin said, there's no way I'm ever going back to Geneva. I'd rather be crucified a thousand times than ever go back to that place. And they write to him. By 1541, the, the church is in chaos. And they write to Calvin, please, will you come back? And Calvin replies immediately and says, yes. But he says, I've now married. I've got, chill, I've got two children by my, they're from his wife's previous marriage. She was widowed. Um, it's going to take us a few months to get everything together. And he tells them when he'll be returning. He returns in 1541. For the next 14 years, he faces opposition from a group of people called the Libertines. These are the people who kicked out Sadaletto in 1536, who really, they don't want the Reformation. They, they just want financial gain, and uh, they, don't they, they need a minister. The place is in chaos, so they've got to invite Calvin back, but they're really not committed to the Reformation. And uh, this is a very dramatic scene. This is a 19th century print that depicts Calvin, there's Calvin, at the Lord's Supper. This is, notice the pulpit? We already saw that. At the Lord's Supper, and these are the Libertines with their swords about to be drawn. It's a very dramatic scene. Uh, it actually never happened. <laughs> what did happen was, on a particular Sunday in 1555, the, the Libertines said, we're coming to church. Usually they didn't come to church. We're coming to church. And you, Calvin, are going to give us the Lord's Supper. And uh, Calvin apparently sent a note back to them and said, it'll be over my dead body. You'll need to kill me before you come. And they realized that Calvin was deadly serious. No pun intended. <laughs> he was deadly serious. And they fled Geneva. And uh, from that point on, Calvin, please note, Calvin is not a citizen. Some people have the impression that Calvin ran Geneva like a gulag, you know, like one of these Soviet gulags. He didn't. Calvin is not a citizen. He has no political power, but he has a lot of moral sway. Uh, and, but there were people still in Geneva who didn't like him. Uh, some of them named their dogs after Calvin. And uh, now you might be thinking, well, that's a, that's a, that's a, a compliment. Well, not in that world. Uh, the dogs were not normally uh, looked to with favor upon. So to name your dog after Calvin was a bit of a, an insult. Um, <clears throat> but Calvin, for the last uh, nine years of his life, has an unhindered ministry. The last couple of years, he becomes a citizen. So that's very important. He doesn't have any political power in the city. Uh, there is at least one man burned for heresy. A Spaniard named Michael Cervantes, um, who Calvin had known for years. He had known him from Paris many, many years before. The man had got himself caught by the Spanish Inquisition, who were going to burn him because he denied the Trinity. He escaped, went back to France, and he wrote to Calvin. He said, I'm coming to Geneva. And Calvin said, if I was you, I wouldn't come to the city 
Number one, you're likely to get arrested. And if you get arrested, they'll probably burn you. So don't come. So he warned him. But Servetus had this idea that somehow in the end time plan of God, he, Servetus, had to go to Geneva and confront Calvin, and that would hasten the second coming. It was some bizarre idea. In other words, he's a bit of a, well, I would describe as a nutcase. He's, he's got a bit of a nutty idea of end times, and he's, he's a Unitarian. He comes to Geneva, and somebody sees him hiding behind a pillar, recognizes him, and he's arrested. And he put on trial, exactly as Calvin said. And Calvin is called for the prosecution as a witness. Basically, is this man a heretic? And Calvin, uh, yeah, he is. And uh, the, the libertines by, at this point are still in power. It's 1552-53. And they know that Calvin probably wouldn't want necessarily for him to be burned. And uh, they go ahead and condemn him to death by burning. And Calvin pleads with them, uh, just chop his head off. Oh. <laughs> um, Philip Melanchthon in Germany writes to Calvin, says, great, you got that heretic. Glad you're going to bump him off. And so uh, he is uh, burned at the stake. And one of Calvin's friends uh, remonstrated with Calvin, a man named Pierre Coroli. Um, uh, he said to Calvin, no, it was the man named Castelio, Sebastian Castelio, who says to Calvin, you've not burned a heresy uh, or a heretic, you've burned a human being. So keep that in the back of your mind about people killing other people over religion, which is very relevant, right? Uh, this is a drawing of Calvin, one of Calvin's students. In 1555, Calvin opens an academy for training ministers. Uh, in the space of about 10 years, they train about 1,000 men. Absolutely remarkable. Many, most of them go back to um, France. A num good number of them are martyred. Uh, so, for instance, there's five students who had done some studies in Basel in Switzerland. They did a year with Calvin, and then they headed to Lyon. As they were traveling, they were joined by another traveler. Often people would travel together. You travel in groups for safety. And as he's tra this other traveler is traveling with these five students, he realizes they're heretics. They're Protestants. He's a very faithful Catholic. He keeps his peace until he gets to Lyon and then betrays them into the hands of the authorities. And they languish in prison for a year. Calvin writes to the governor of Lyon, trying to get them free. He says, these men pose no, no, pro, no, no threat to Lyon. They've come to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus. They're not going to overthrow Lyon no, to no avail. He then writes to the king of France, Francois, uh, it would have been Henri, I think, uh, Henri II or whatever. And the king of France is, no, no, we're going to burn them. Then he writes to a number of German princes. Can you put pressure on the king of France? But they eventually burn all five men. And that happened to quite a number of the men that Calvin trained. Uh, Calvin also trained uh, some men who ended up in Brazil. Um, we'll get to a man named Gaspar de Coligny, who I'll talk about at the end of today, and we'll see how he proposes the possibility of a French Calvinist colony uh, off the coast of um, Rio de Janeiro. And Calvin will send two ministers among the men he trains. We'll see something of that. Anyway, Calvin has the academy. Uh, here's somebody who was doodling. <laughs> One of his students doodling and uh, drew Calvin. And uh, you'll notice the beard. So here are some aspects of Calvin's preaching. This is the, the pulpit. Uh, it's got, this is a, a sounding board because they wouldn't have had any sort of technological um, uh, uh, means of projecting a voice, and so this would have been used to project the voice. Um, so this is a very interesting saying. Um, my mass, here it is, it's the Bible, and I desire no other.
that tells you a lot about Calvin. That for Calvin, the center of his life was what God had revealed of himself in Holy Scripture. For Calvin, the Bible's infallible. Human beings are fallible. We make mistakes. Uh, for, for Calvin, the Bible is an infallible text. And that's absolutely imperative for us. And uh, when a church starts to believe that the Bible has errors in it, there's no, there's no stopping. Like then, who, who determines what is erroneous and what is true? And uh, rightly, Calvin uh, emphasized the infallibility of the scriptures and their perspicuity. Yeah, that might not be a word you use regularly. Uh, perspicuity. The scriptures are perspicuous. That is, that is, their central message is easy to understand. I think it was Augustine said, the scriptures are like a river that a little sheep, a little lamb can come down and wade in and drink and be satisfied. But an elephant can come down and go into that same stream and it's a, it's, it's a huge lake in which he cannot touch bottom. It's a great illustration that the Word of God is simple enough to know the way of salvation. Even a child can read and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. But there are riches there that are deep, deep riches. And, uh, but the emphasis on the perpiscuity of the script, the reason why Calvin and the Reformers emphasized that is because the Roman Catholic Church kept insisting there's no way the common people can understand the Bible. We, sh we shouldn't give the scriptures to the common people. So I grew up Roman Catholic uh, around the time of Vatican II. Uh, Vatican II would change all this in the 1960s, that big council. But uh, my mother was a traditional Irish Catholic. We, we didn't have a Bible in the house. We had a missal, the prayer book, but we didn't have a Bible. I can still remember the first Bible I read when I was a, um, a student at University of Toronto. And they were handing out Bibles. I've always loved books. Somebody handed out free books. Oh, I'll take one of those <laughs> on campus. And... Uh, uh, Calvin is an expository preacher. That is, he, we, we, well, we, we're used to that here, right? We have Pastor Mahaffey and uh, Pastor Strickland. Uh, he would begin at the beginning of a book, First uh, Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, and he preached the whole book. Then he'd start Romans. He preached through all of the New Testament, except for First and Second, Second and Third John, and we're not sure why he never got around to that, but you can understand that they're just, they would just be one sermon apiece. And he never preached Revelation. He claimed that Revelation was too difficult a book for him to understand. Which, if Calvin couldn't understand it, it should give pause to a lot of people who have said, oh yeah, Revelation is easy. Uh, okay. Um, so expository preaching. And his sermons were never more than 40 minutes. And in fact, after he died, the... A company of elders in Geneva passed a ruling that no man can preach more than 40 minutes. I'm not sure what they would do if you went for more than 40 minutes. Um, I still remember being at a conference where we had a time limit. And uh, I, I was over by about five minutes. And the chairman of the conference got up. I, I'd never, I've never experienced this ever since. He gets up and he stands right beside me. Like basically, shut her down. Okay. So I don't know what they would do in Geneva if you went more than 40 minutes, but anyway. Uh, so, brevitas, brevity. Calvin spoke in a metropolitan French. That is a French that was easy to understand for a Frenchman from Switzerland, from France, from Belgium. Uh, those various countries that would speak French, etc. Uh, it's an international French. Um, and then he would conclude with a prayer that normally began, now let us turn to the Lord. As I said, I think I mentioned this last week, the company of elders appointed very early on, this man, Denis Ragunier. I have not been able to find, and I've looked, any biographical information about this man. But he was appointed to sit under the pulpit, every word he heard from Calvin's mouth, to write it down. And that meant that when Calvin began to pray, he wrote down all his prayers. And they're fabulous. You, you hear Calvin praying for the word of God as he's preached it to impact the people who've heard it. 
Then he prays for the, 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 the various countries in Europe, France, and then he starts to pray for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. And people have accused Calvin, you know, Calvin didn't have a sense of mission. That just is not the case. You just have to read his prayers to get to realize that this man had an idea. The gospel was for all humanity, not just for Europeans. Uh, we have 2,500 sermons uh, who are recorded, uh, most of them because of Denis. Um, I think it's about 2,200 by Denis and 300 in, in other uh, circumstances. Uh, there were a lot more, but in the 19th century, when the church went liberal, they didn't care for Calvin. And if you went on a visit, they'd give you as a memento one of Denis Reguniers' handwritten copies. Can you, can you believe this? It's absolutely bonkers. It is. I mean, it's a 300-year-old sermon that even if you don't buy, like Calvin, at least you can recognize its historical value. But they'd give them out as mementos. And a lot of the sermons have been lost. And then finally, Calvin's conviction, God's servants ought to speak from the inmost affections of their heart. And we talked a little bit about this with Calvin, Calvin and the whole area of affection. And he had a remarkable preaching ministry. In addition to that, he also began to write commentaries. He writes commentaries on all the New Testament books, except for Revelation and 2nd and 3rd John and about half of the Old Testament books. Uh, in fact, this is, this is going to be hard for you to believe, but 40%, 40% of the books printed in Europe, all of Europe, between 1541 and 1564, were written by John Calvin. 40%. Uh, just think today, I choose your favorite preacher, you know, John Piper or John MacArthur or R.C. Sproul, and think if 40% of all the books printed in North America were written by one man like that. It's no wonder he has an enormous impact. Enormous impact. <coughs> so this is uh, the impact of Calvin. This is a little funny thing I saw. I, when we were in Geneva, we left the church and we were walking down the street and they had a sign, Calvinus... Uh, uh, kind of artisan beer. Uh, I'm not into beer. So don't take that away. I just thought, I don't, I'm not sure Calvin would appreciate that. You know, it was outside some pub. Um, there also, though, is this Geneva wall. Now, up there, you can actually see people. See, see the size of them? Compared to this? If a person was standing here, and I, I have pictures, I should have brought one of those, uh, they, they wouldn't be even up to this ledge. This is huge. Um, Farrell, uh, uh, Calvin, um, Beza, Theodore Beza, who succeeded Calvin, and then John Knox. I'm not sure how Knox got in there, but this is a 19th century depiction of the reformers. And uh, I, I should have maybe brought you some or also more recent ones. There's been a significant movement of uh, gay people in Geneva, and they spray-painted this. They've done it at least two or three times, and they've had to, the authorities have had to come and whitewash it, uh, etc. Um, on this side, there is in Latin, uh, post-tenebris, after darkness, and one word over here, lux, light. It's a very powerful image. That after the darkness of the Middle Ages, there's light. Also, what I mean, it would be, I, you can get them, but I, I, I didn't take a picture of it. There are four Reformation figures here, no longer, not as big as these men, and then four over here. I'll show you one of them uh, in a few minutes. Okay, let me switch from that to another a group of slides. So give me a sec here. Okay, let me go. Uh, so there's, let me go all the way back to uh, key elements. Have I gone all the way back? 
Yeah, okay. These are key elements of Calvin's theology. Um, Calvin is remembered as the theologian of the Holy Spirit. Um, his big book, The Institutes of Christian Religion, half of it is devoted to how the Holy Spirit works in our lives. And uh, one of the things I think we have forgotten, and Calvin bequeathed this to two groups in, in, the, in the European scene. One of them is the Puritans, and the other is a whole movement in the Netherlands called the Nadra Reformati, the Second Reformation. And this deep interest in the work of the Holy Spirit in the Christian's life. Um, Calvin, and that, that, the reason why that's important is I think in the 20th century, uh, a lot of evangelicals are afraid of the Holy Spirit. Um, we've seen the Pentecostals and Charismatics. Uh, some of them scare us. Uh, uh, some of them are wild and woolly. And uh, we've kind of done a pendulum reaction. Um, I think we'd be scared if, if we had somebody like Spurgeon. Spurgeon would sometimes stop in the middle of his preaching and ask for the Holy Spirit to come in power. I, w I wonder if that happened. We think, oh, the guy's gone charismatic. Uh, but I think the, there is a long tradition that goes back to Calvin that absolutely vital for our worship is the Spirit. And uh, a number of Reformed or Evangelical churches would have prayer meetings on Sunday morning to pray for the service. And that, the, that Calvin is influential in that. The second thing of Calvin is his theology of the Holy Spirit, of the Lord's Supper. Uh, remember Luther? Remember we had looked at Luther and Zwingli? Luther, the bread and the wine are with or under the, sorry, the, the body and blood are with or under the bread and the wine. Uh, Zwingli, no. They represent, they, the bread and the wine represent the body and blood of Christ. Uh, Calvin tries to strike a mediatorial position, which is, number one, the, bread, the body of Christ cannot be in the bread and the wine, like Luther says. Because if it's a real humanity, our Lord's body is at the right hand of the Father. It's in heaven. It's a real humanity. He took it with him to heaven. On the other hand, Calvin wants to emphasize that at the table, we do meet with Christ. Uh, he's with us by the Spirit. Calvin actually talks about the Lord's Supper, that the Spirit takes us up to heaven. It's a foretaste of heaven. And for Calvin, it's very evident that the Lord's Supper is one of the most important vehicles of your spiritual growth. And I think we've also lost this. By and large. Um, in Presbyterian churches, for example, they would have the Lord's Supper four times a year. Calvin wanted it every week. Um, personally, I think we should have it every week. I think it should be in response to the preaching of the Word. And I actually believe fully Calvin's view of the table. I think the bread and the wine are not merely a memorial. They are that. But I do believe that we encounter the risen Christ if we come with faith we are in the presence of the risen Christ. Jesus could say, we're two or three gathered together, there I am. Um, Calvin would emphasize, if you don't come with faith, all you get is bread and wine. He doesn't, he doesn't see anything particularly in the bread and the wine that pertains to the bread and the wine. They are symbols, but they speak of a powerful reality that we meet with the risen Christ. And uh, I think Calvin is right on that. Uh, Calvin also is very committed to the unity of the church. Uh, he writes once to Thomas Cramner. We'll look at him later in the, this series of talks. And he says to Cramner, I'd be willing to come to England. We could establish, we could have a huge international conference to kind of unify the Reformation. And he would say at one point, I would not begrudge crossing even 10 seas to help restore unity among the people of God. Uh, Calvin was kicked out of the Roman Catholic Church, but... That wasn't his aim. His aim was to reform the church. And then, if you ask Calvin, so what is the, what are the main themes of Calvin's theology? There are two. Number one, the sovereignty of God. God is absolutely sovereign over everything that takes place in our lives. And the second is that we are, we are created for the glory of God. 
there's a lot of talk in our day about the five points of Calvinism. You may have heard it. If you'd ask Calvin, what do you think about the five points of Calvinism, he wouldn't have known what you're talking about. Uh, that's a much later development. It's not Calvin's emphasis. Calvin's great emphasis is God is sovereign, utterly sovereign over the affairs of men and women. And uh, that is something I think is very, very important in our day. Uh, as you look at the Middle East, um, I'll come back to this in a minute. I think it has, it's germane to what we're going to talk about. I'm not trying to import this. But if you look at the Middle East and um, recent statements coming out of Iran, uh, you can easily see that today uh, Israel had to fight on four, four fronts. They were getting attacked from Lebanon, Syria. Uh, there were attacks coming in from the sea. And then Gaza. And you can easily see America sent two major warships into that region. Uh, I don't know if America wants another war, but you can easily see if Iran... Iran is attacking Israel through these various proxy groups. And you can easily see how this thing could explode. And it's very helpful. You, you, you know, you think, okay, where, where on earth are we going to be 10 years from now? And um, Iran doesn't have nuclear weapons, but you bet you if they had nuclear weapons, they'd be dropping them on Israel. Uh, they're, they're vowed basically to destroy Israel from the face of the earth. And it is a great comfort that we have a sovereign God. That nothing takes place about his ultimate control. And he is using all of these events to build his kingdom. And that, that, that's very important. And then the glory of God. Um, why, why, why do I exist? Uh, some of you will know that we had a, a difficult event in our home. We, our oldest cat died. And um, why, why, why did God make cats? They're not mentioned in the Bible. Um, for his glory. Right? That's why he's made all things. He's made us for his glory. The meaning of my life is found in knowing him and living for his glory. And that's the great theme of Calvin. Uh, there are areas of Calvin I would disagree with. But these two things are so, they're so helpful. They give meaning to your life and they give you comfort that there is a sovereign God who is sovereign over the affairs of everything that's happening in this world. And we often, we have no idea why he allows certain things, but he is sovereign. Now let me turn to his impact In France, if I can. Okay, so there's, there's the Gawina's beer. <laughs> uh, okay, so this is, uh, these are churches in France. Calvin trade ministers for them. This is the one at Lyon, where his close friend, uh, one of his close friends, um, uh, Pierre Viret, would be the minister. It's built in the round. This church no longer exists. It was torn down in the 17th century by the French government. Um, it's a fascinating building. Um, and you've got the congregation very close to the preacher. Notice the preacher is central in this. They, the the Protestant, French Protestants built this church. Uh, you can't see this clearly, but there's a, a wee dog here. <laughs> there's a lot of church pictures. I, they've got wee dogs in them. I, I think that must have been not uncommon. In England, uh, one of the responsibilities of, um, oh, I forget the name of his, uh, it wasn't the warden, but there was a name of, uh, of an individual in the church. He would keep the church record books, the marriage books, and he, his, all, his, all, his responsibility also was to make sure dogs didn't get in to the worship service. Uh, William Carey's father had this position. And so this may be a stray dog. But what's very interesting, the dog is very, listening very attentively to the preaching <laughs> of the word. Now, this is a, a second church. This is a bit later. This is 17th century. This is Charenton, just outside Paris. Uh, this congregation 
14,000 in membership. 14,000 in that church. I mean, it's, I mean we, we think, oh, yeah, 20th century is the first church of these mega churches. Yeah, right. 14,000. You can see the, the huge galleries. This is a representation that has been done the modern day. This is a contemporary picture of the church. Absolutely huge. It will be torn down in the 1680s by the French government, but that's another story. Um, when Calvin, was, uh, when he, Calvin goes up to Paris to study just before his conversion, uh, there's around 2,000 evangelicals in France. 20 million evangelical. Of 20 million people, 2,000 evangelicals. In the space of 40 years, those 2,000 become 2 million. In the space of 40 years, in the 1520s, there were 2,000 evangelical Christians or Protestants. By the 1560s, there are 2 million. 50% of the middle class was converted in 40 years, and 50% of the upper class. In other words, the power brokers. Uh, the Reformation did have a difficult time reaching the poor who couldn't read. But there is massive changes in France. And among those who were reached were these three brothers. The Coligny brothers. This is their crest, kind of an eagle. And this is Gaspard de Coligny. So he's one of the statues in that huge Reformation wall. Right? So you've got the central four figures, and then you've got another eight figures, of whom one is Gaspard de Coligny. Uh, here are his three brothers. These are all converted men. Uh, Oday, O-D-E-T. We'll talk a little bit about him in a minute. Here's Gaspar de Coligny. This is, by the way, the height of fashion. Oh. <laughs> uh, these men are wearing, these are stockings. Uh, I am glad that we have changed from that. Um, and so this uh, uh, O'Day, O-D-E-T, Gaspar, and Francois de Coligny. Uh, they're one of the great aristocratic houses in France. Uh, Gaspar de Coligny is the admiral of the French Navy, the supreme admiral of the entire Navy. And um, here is uh, portraits of them. So this is Gaspar de Coligny. I'll talk about him in a minute. This is Oday. You'll notice he, this portrait was done when he was a Roman Catholic cardinal. Uh, he gets converted. Um, he marries. And uh, <laughs> it's absolutely shocking. One of the leading churchmen in France is, becomes a Christian, gets married no less, and he gets married in his cardinal's robes. And his wife insisted when you met her, if you didn't know her, she, she was to be addressed as Madame le Cardinal, which was just another kind of slap in the face of Roman Catholic uh, th uh, theology and thinking. Uh, Gaspar de Coligny was, uh, he was in a battle, uh, a sea battle against the Spanish off the Netherlands. Uh, the Spanish owned the Netherlands during this period of time. There'll be a great war of liberation and he is imprisoned in the Netherlands. And he's in absolute despair about his situation. And he writes to O'Day, and O'Day tells him, you need to write to John Calvin. And uh, he, you need, well, the reality is you need to become a Christian, is what needs to happen. And so uh, Gaspar de Coligny writes to Calvin, and in the space of time, he becomes a believer. So you can see then, this is gonna be very disturbing to the Roman Catholic authorities in Europe. Um, if little parts of Germany go Protestant, no big deal. So you got this little country, little little state called Saxony, with a, 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 a Lutheran monk, ex-monk, you know, Martin Luther, no big deal. Um, if England goes Protestant, I mean, they're a minor power in Europe, and they're all the way up in the middle of nowhere. But if France goes, that's the hinge of Europe. There are two great Catholic powers in Europe, Spain and France. And France looks like it's on the verge of going Protestant. And that's going to be a big issue. Um, there is significant dissension in France. Remember Calvin? Calvin had to flee France. 
because of the, the edict that if he had stayed, he'd be burned. So that's still technically on the books. Now you've got all these men like Gaspar de Coligny becoming evangelicals, worshipping in Protestant churches, building Protestant churches all over the countryside. And uh, Gaspar de Coligny actually suggested to the King of France, uh, why don't we create a French Protestant colony, and most of us could go there, and why don't you give us what becomes Quebec, uh, Nouvelle France? And uh, if Quebec had been a Protestant colony, the entire history of North America would be different. But they don't agree to it. But the king does say, okay, he, he gets, he gets um, uh, the idea, why don't we establish a little colony in South America? South America is being taken over by two great powers, Spain and Portugal. And the French want their part of it. So they, 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 they're going to send a, an expedition to Rio de Janeiro. And uh, he tells, the king tells Gaspar, ask your friends in Geneva if they'd like to send some ministers. And as soon as the elders in Geneva get the wind of this idea, two men are chosen. They go with the expedition to, front, uh, to Rio de Janeiro. The whole thing collapses, though. Uh, the Portuguese find out and destroy the colony, kill most of the uh, expedition, and uh, only a few straggle back to Europe with news of the complete disaster. Uh, in recent years, uh, Brazilian evangelicals have put up a plaque uh, opposite where the island is, uh, indicating this, this settlement in the 1550s. In uh, the early 1560s, the dissension between Protestant and Catholic comes to blows. And there is a Protestant worship service that is attacked physically by Catholic soldiers who kill a number of the Protestants. Calvin, when he hears about it, writes to the French churches and said, do not pick up the sword to defend the gospel. But these men think differently. So let, let's say, let, if I was Gaspar de Coligny, he's got lands that he has inherited. Right? He's inherited from his father, and they go way back in nobility. These are villages and towns that many of them now have embraced the gospel. There are Protestant churches. And I have a responsibility to them in his mind. And when Catholics come in to attack them, should we not defend ourselves? And so beginning in the early 1560s, running all the way through to 1598, you have about six or seven wars of religion. Calvin is insistent, do not take up the sword to defend the gospel. But these men, and you can understand their dilemma. Do we let these people come in and just kill us? Can we not defend ourselves? And what happens in this sort of fighting, it's, if you, let's say you've got a battle in which a, you, a Catholic individual is killed, and then you try to go to that person's village and evangelize them. You can imagine the barriers that are going to be set up. So in France, the growth of the evangelical population ends in the 1560s. For 40 years, staggering growth from 2000 in the 1520s to 2 million. It never gets any bigger than 2 million. Because as soon as they start to defend themselves, it puts an end. A wall goes up of hostility and animosity between Catholic and Protestant. Um, I don't know whether this would be the case in, in France, but uh, villages would become Protestant or Catholic, and if you're of, of the opposite faith, you can't live there. Uh, they'd know you're Catholic or Protestant by your first name, by the way. Uh, the Protestants always use Old Testament names. The Catholics use New Testament names. So there's a famous scene that takes place in, in the cathedral of St. Peter where a couple come and they want to get their child baptized. And Calvin asks them, so what's the name of the child? And they say uh, something like uh, Pierre. 
Calvin says, no, you're not, you're, we're not, we are not using that name. No, no, we want Pierre. No, it'll be Samuel or Abraham. No, no, we want Pierre. There's actually a fight. We actually have record of this. There's a fight right at the infant, uh, at the infant uh, font. You know, they, 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 this couple wanting a Catholic name, whatever reason. And Calvin insisting, no, it's got to be a Protestant name. And he baptizes the kid the Protestant name. Who knows what the kid, what happened with the family or whatever, uh, etc. So names are important. We don't think anything of names. We just think, oh, yeah, that's a cool name. But names are important. So when, um, I don't know if uh, Graham would remember this, but when I first went out with your sister, my wife, uh, I can still remember, it was uh, August the 24th, 1973. And uh, we went down to the uh, steakhouse on James, opposite what was then the Eaton Center, and then we went to see a movie with Ryan O'Neill called Paper Moon. You can, these things are... <laughs> anyway, when I drop Allison off, her mom's waiting, obviously. So, did you have a good night? Whatever. And um, so, you know, what's his background? Well, he grew up in England. And, um, well, what's his name? Michael. And Allison's Al- mom's first words were, he's a Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> And Allison said, how did you know that? Well, his name. No, no self-respecting Protestant in Scotland would ever call their kid Michael. I mean, only the Catholics called their kid Michael. And uh, so you could tell, this would be true for Northern Ireland, all the troubles there. You've got Protestant villages, Catholic villages. I've been there. You could st- if, one, if a village is flying the Union Jack, it's Protestant. If it's flying the Republican flag, it's a Catholic town. You could also tell by the accent. I think I know the accents well enough that the Catholic and the Protestant have a different accent. It's very interesting. And then your first name. If in doubt, what's your first name? That's all gone, by the way. I remember meeting a Scotsman. He came over to study at Southern, and he had a brother. He was from Glasgow, and he had a brother named Liam. That is so Catholic. So I said to him, I said, you must have been raised a Catholic. He says, oh, no, we are, brave. We are brethren. <laughs> and I realized, ah, oh, it's just gone by the boards, you know. People just give whatever. That's good, right? Yeah. But um, <clears throat> so what you've got then are these wars of religion and men and women killing each other over their, I'm Catholic or I'm Protestant. And it, 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 it built... Decades and centuries of hatred. And the hatred is passed on to the children. Um, In uh, 1572, there is a royal wedding in Paris. The household of Gaspard de Coligny, he's one of the great aristocrats, he's invited. And the queen, in her correspondence to the pope, she's a de' Medici. An Italian. The Medici's are very powerful figures in Florence. They control the banking system in northern Italy. They actually control the papacy. Uh, there was Leo X, who was the pope when uh, uh, Luther was converted. He was a de Medici. And in the correspondence, she happens to mention, we've got all those rotten, horrible Protestants coming to Paris for a wedding. And... Uh, the correspondence that came back didn't say anything explicit. It just said, you have a fabulous opportunity here. On uh, August the 23rd, so war, there had been fighting going on for a number of years, 10 years after the fighting had started. On August the 23rd, Gaspard de Coligny and his family arrive in Paris. The big Roman Catholic house is the House of Guise. And one of them has been talking to the Queen. Again, it's very difficult to pin this on the Queen or even pin it back to the papacy. Uh, but one of the House of Guise tries to assassinate Gaspard de Coligny in the street with a blunderbuss. 
an early shotgun. Wounds his arm. Um, he is taken into his house. Later that evening, soldiers of the House of Guise break into the house. They go upstairs. They fight their way upstairs. And uh, Gaspar de Coligny is stabbed and then thrown out of the upstairs window. And this might be him being beheaded. And what it initiates is an orgy of murder and bloodshed. So much so, we're told that the, this is, if you can see the painting in detail, this is filled with bodies. This is the Sen. It ran red. We're looking at probably in the space of three or four days, anywhere between five to 10,000 men and women just butchered in the streets, in their homes in Paris. And from Paris, it spread all through France. All the major cities, Lyon, Orléans, Rouen, uh, were absolutely scenes of m massive bloodshed. The French uh, evangelicals will say upwards of 100,000 were killed in the space of a month or two. It's, that's probably an exaggeration, but it's definitely around 30,000. And Gaswater Colony is among them. And it's just absolutely horrific. Um, so we've seen that, right, in recent days. And you wonder, you wonder, you know, what, 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 what prompts, what, what's going through a person's mind when they go into a, a kibbutz or a village or that rock festival and they're, they're thinking, I'm going to kill another human being. How, how, can you, how can you do that? It's because they don't view them as human beings. They view them as a scourge, or as demonic, or as animals. And uh, I think it's very difficult for us living in the West to, to kind of envisage what, what will grip a person to kill another human being, because my religious views are different from yours. But we've had, we've had that here. And not surprisingly, the Protestants fight back, the wars go on and off until 1598. And then a peace treaty is drawn up. Um, we can't get into the story in the 17th century. It's a very sad story of the French Calvinists. Uh, eventually, in 1685, the peace treaty is withdrawn. And about half a million French evangelicals leave France. Most of them are middle class, artisans, uh, jewelers, uh, professionals, lawyers, doctors. They end up in a variety of places. You'll find people with French names in Germany. Where do they come from? Huguenot background. They end up in the Netherlands, uh, England. Uh, so the great actor Laurence Olivier, right? His roots are French evangelicals. And then a lot of them come to America. If you ever go down to Charleston in South Carolina, it's a gorgeous town. And you go down to the old quarter, you think you're in Europe. Uh, and you look at the, the, the names on the original houses built in the early 1700s, at least a third to half of them are French. They're French Huguenots who have been driven out. Um, I remember that one of the times I was in Cork in Ireland, I was going down a side street and suddenly came across a cemetery. I, I'm weird, I, I like cemeteries. And it was a whole cemetery of French evangelicals who had been buried there. In the 15, in the 70, early 1700s, so they fled from France, and uh, France will have a great uh, rivalry of England, and uh, England will win that rivalry eventually. And one of the reasons is the core of probably the French business class had left France, and England would strive ahead in the Industrial Revolution. But that's that's a long-term result, but it's absolutely devastating. Um, this is horrific, and it becomes known as the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. August 24th is the festival of St. Bartholomew. Uh, Calvin is dead by this point. I'm not sure how Calvin would have reacted to this. Uh, would he have modified his view? You cannot take up the sword to defend the gospel. So next week then, uh, we switch gears and we go to England. And we'll begin looking at the English Reformation, where we'll spend the rest of our, our time. Okay. Let me close with a word of prayer. Father, thank you again.
for the privilege of thinking about our past. Uh, please help us to live faithfully in our day, as many of these men and women that we've been looking at sought to live faithfully in their day. And may the time spent together thinking about the past be of help to us. And may you be our peace and give us grace this week, for Jesus' sake. Amen.